listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. Welcome to another episode of Rattle and Pedal. I want to start this this podcast by saying that we have recently been on an effort to really interview marketers and CEOs and other practice leaders and firm leaders to really get an insight from them into some of the challenges that they're facing and how they're overcoming them. And if you've enjoyed those, that was entirely my idea. If you've not enjoyed them, then it's all McKay's fault. And as you have noted, I haven't been on any of these. So this is the first time that I get to do this. So with me today is, of course, Jeff. And Gil Hotch, who's the CEO of MSA, which is a client of ours, so full disclosure there. But Gil, if you could introduce yourself and tell us all a little bit about MSA. Certainly. Uh, good morning, Jason and Jeff, and thanks for the opportunity to spend a few minutes with you. The firm is MSA Professional Services. We're about a 350-person engineering, architecture, planning, and surveying firm. Our roots go back to a two-person survey partnership in the 1930s. We've been incorporated for about 54 years. Our home base is just outside of Madison, Wisconsin. And we're predominantly an upper Midwest firm with 16 offices right now in Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, Minnesota, and then a couple of branches in Atlanta and in Dallas. I joined a firm in 1992 as a wastewater engineer uh, coming in out of grad school, and I was very passionate, still am, about clean water as a drinking source and returning wastewater or used water back to the environment in, in a responsible manner. So our firm designs the infrastructure that does that. It provides a clean source of drinking water for communities across the upper Midwest, and then we treat what comes out the other side uh, in addition <laughs> to all the other stuff we do. So highways and bridges and airports and, and things like that. So I joined in 92 and sort of worked my way up the ladder. Of course, first it was an engineering challenge, but little by little, it became more of a business challenge as I acquired a team and joined the board in 2007 and then becoming a, a vice president in 2008. And, and by then it was all a business challenge. I was doing virtually no engineering, but I learned to enjoy and embrace the new challenge. By uh, about 2012-2013, I was scheduled to succeed the president. We had a split president-CEO at that time, and the president was really Mr. Inside. It was the operational role that I felt suited me, but long story short, in that transition in 2013, I also ended up taking on the role of the CEO in a somewhat unplanned fashion. And I combined those two roles back into one person. There were some rifts that had occurred in the company underneath the prior dual leadership. And I realized whether I wanted whether I wanted to do this or not, what the company needed me to do was to, to step up and fill both of those roles. So that's mm-hmm. essentially what I've been doing since early 2013. Now, you might have said this, the firm is 100 years old now? Is that right? No, our roots informally as a partnership maybe go back to the 1930s. Uh, We've been formally incorporated about 54 years. Only 54 years, right? How many leaders have led the firm? Do you know that by any chance? I do, yeah. If we go back to, I guess it's 56 years. 1962 was the date of incorporation. We had essentially one president or CEO from that time until about 
the mid-90s. So uh, he had a good long run. And then a gentleman, Gil Gerdman, took over from about the mid-90s until 2008. 2002 was when president CEO offices became split, but he retired in 2008. And then there was a gentleman, Jim Owen, occupied it from 2008 to 2013, and then me. So I guess I would be the fourth CEO of the company. And if I heard right, the second Gil, right? And the second Gil, yeah. I yeah. Go all my life not meeting another person named Gil, and here he was uh, <laughs> Working at the company I came to join. <laughs> so now, what, one of the things that is important, I think, to understand about some of those leadership transitions is that MSA is a 100% ESOP firm, and that's a big part of your culture. So, so tell us, I guess, what that means to MSA, why it's important, and also maybe maybe a little bit about what that means for leadership transition as well. I think that's an important piece of it. Sure. You know, I think it, it was even from the moment I set foot in this company when I was uh, interviewing in 92, and it felt different than all the other companies that I interviewed. So there's just a, a feeling that feels right. I had been coming prior to that from a company where ownership was not possible. So when I learned that MSA was employee owned and there was opportunities for ownership, I thought that was compelling to me. But then there's this whole esprit de corps that develops when, especially now that we're 100% ESOP owned, back back when I joined in 92, it was a partial ESOP. But people now are really beginning to realize that they're in partnership with their coworkers. They're in an ownership position and they've got responsibility now to the well-being of the company and that their actions and their attitudes really matter. I think from another perspective, as I've you know traveled throughout the industry and, and talked to my peers, I'm always hearing about ownership transition events that don't always go very well because they're few and far between, right? You have a, a founder or a second generation owner and they own the lion's share of the stock and all of a sudden it's time to sell and there isn't anybody who can afford to buy them. So what we do is we work on ownership transition every year. The ESOP wow. structure forces us to deal with departing owners every year. So it's done in, in bite-sized pieces. So if we manage it right, there's no guarantees, but if we manage it right, we should be able to avoid the ownership transition problems that is really the primary reason why companies are sold today. And if we have it in our mind that MSA uh, is a good company doing good things and we should be allowed to continue to exist, then it's our job to perpetuate MSA as long as it can do good you know, for society. How does leadership transitions work in MSA? Yeah. Meaning that all the owners don't have a say necessarily. No, they don't. The yeah, ownership and leadership, we've always said, are two different things. Um, I could be an owner of Apple by buying stock, but I've got absolutely no <laughs> rights to say how they do things. So we talk about those things. But leadership transition has always been, almost always been internal. It's been very well managed. I think we've always done some gut level succession planning within the last five years. We've formalized a written succession plan. So we've got somebody identified. I mean, if I step out in the street here and get hit by a bus, who's the person that's going to step in? And then who are we grooming to replace anybody in the leadership position in the long term? Sometimes that successor for the short term and long term is the same person. Sometimes those are different people. But it's always been uh, fairly seamless. From an ESOP standpoint, the owners, the employee owners do elect the board. We're one of a, a vast minority. When I say a minority, I would say I would bet 1% of the ESOP companies pass through board election voting rights to their shareholders. Wow. And, and we've always done that. 
So the board will nominate a slate, but everybody gets the opportunity to vote their shares. So from that standpoint, it's been very stable, but it's open. It's an open process. And from there, it's the board that has the responsibility of appointing the leaders. So really, I mean, the ownership does have a say. I mean, the ownership, I mean, everyone at the firm that is an owner has the right to vote on who, who's in the board. Yeah. And, and I the think board going, has the right to elect the leadership. Going back to this Apple stock analogy, yeah, I think I you, you expect more when you're an ESOP owner. So not only do you get to vote, which I suppose you can vote your shares uh, in, in a big corporate election too, but they also have a reasonable expectation to have access to leadership. So anybody can and does call me or walk into my office to let me know what they think about things. So they, I think they understand and respect that they may not have the right to dictate what happens. Nobody plunks down and says, I'm an owner, therefore you got to listen to me, but they know I'm going to listen to them. And uh, I get very good feedback. And sometimes we change our mind on decisions we've made based on listening to good advice from our employee owners who may see things from a different perspective. All right. So now you also gave us a beautiful segue in that in that conversation, which I love because you describe, I, I love the Apple analogy. I think it's just a really good analogy, you know, that, that you just because you're an owner doesn't mean you would barge into, into the office offices and say, this is what should be done. That analogy is one that you shared in something that you've called the key speech. And that's really sort of the, the meat of what I wanted to talk to you about today. So a few months ago at MSA's Employee Ownership Appreciation Week, you delivered something called the key speech. And it's a very, now, now I, will, I will be full disclosure, I have not watched the delivery of the speech. I've only read the speech. And so I enjoyed reading it so much. I think it's actually a really good piece of business writing because there's so many different things packed into this one speech that I find really interesting. But to start, I guess I want to ask you, why did you pen it and deliver it? What are you hoping to accomplish by kind of putting yourself out there as a leader and in, in, in this moment and saying, hey, I have this thing I want to talk about? Yeah, I, I would say in one word, it, it's clarity. And and so what I mean by that is I described a little bit how I came into this position. It sort of happened all at once and it wasn't exactly a purposeful transition. It was a transition that needed to happen. So consequently, I find myself one day I'm running the company and, and certainly I did not have a crystal clear view of, of what I was setting out to do. You got to remember, I didn't go to business school. I'm, I'm just an engineer who, who now finds himself in, in control of the company. So I, I came in sort of as the reluctant leader who needed to step up and, and fix some problems, I, I certainly had some vague notions and some, some philosophies that were forming. And I'd been given latitude by the board to do what feels right. And this goes back to being an ESOP company. I mean, I didn't mention this idea that we can make decisions for the long term instead of having to satisfy a quarterly earnings update. So I was given the latitude to do some long-term things. Now, from a distance, and, and that could be the employees of the company, they might see these various changes in initiatives, and they might seem a little disparate or unrelated. But they all really stem from a consistent way of how we decided we wanted to run this firm in the future. So even though we were ramping up our communication and doing a better job on that than we've done in the past, I think there was always this undercurrent that people didn't quite get the vision of the company. What are, what are we trying to do? So it was in the course of our rebranding effort, we had the golden opportunity with that sort of pivot point to get a defining statement of intent out there about who are we, who have we become, and who do we aspire to be as a company? So I really had the opportunity during Employee Ownership Appreciation Week in the same year that we did our rebrand to try and coalesce 
the vision thing, as it's been called in the past. And and it was in full disclosure, Jason, uh, you put that idea in my head when we were doing our workshop in terms of, you know, this might be a good opportunity to do that. And you you turned me on to something that Arup, which is a very large international engineering firm, their founder had done back in the 70s. And and I'm a word guy. I'm one of the few engineers maybe that enjoys writing. And I appreciated sort of deconstructing Arup speech. And they're a different company and they've got different things that they talked about. But the overall sentiment of how might I construct a defining statement for MSA that people could maybe go back to and revisit or we could use to share for prospective or new employees as to what this company is all about. So it was really trying to pull together the last five years of change and put it into a vision that everybody could say, oh, I understand what you've been trying to do and I can get behind it. Yeah, there's, there's, there's so many layers to this speech that I love. And one of the things that I really like about it was that when you described it to me, it was a bit of a of a different thing for you to deliver the way that you did. So, so in terms of the way you've normally interacted as a leader, I think it was a departure from maybe you know past times you've spoken to the whole firm in the employee appreciation week. So, just talk about that for a second because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I, I did a little bit of a throwback. I think everything I've ever done has been with a PowerPoint. You know, we we use the slides and you have your bullets up there, and consequently, I. I I can just use the slides as my prompts for what I want to say. So those can be a little bit more extemporaneous. And then I usually incorporate, you know, some cute graphics. I always try and bring in a little humor along with, uh, you know, trying to make my business points. And in this case, I decided that I don't want people reading the slides or looking at the screens. I, I want their full attention because I, I'm hoping what I say is going to be really important. So I, I, I also wrote the entire speech out, which I've been trying to get away from because I think the delivery can be more stilted when you're reading something as opposed to something that's more conversational. But going back to this idea that I, I, I read a lot, I enjoy writing, and, and words are very important to me. And when I write, I can usually get the, the correct word. And I'm always afraid that it's not going to come out you know, exactly the way I had phrased it in, in, in the writing. So I, I, I did write the entire thing out, and I let people know right up front, I'm not here to, to put on a comedy show, which sometimes I, I do. Uh, I'm going to be serious, and I'm not going to put any slides up. So if you want to leave, you can leave right now. <laughs> and nobody left the room I was in. I have no idea how many people turned off the remote that brought. <laughs> and so then, you know, very early on in the talk, I think they, they could see that this was different than any other message that I'd given them before and that I was earnestly serious. And as you said, putting myself really at risk as a leader because this thing could have been potentially received as a bunch of corporate BS. But I really wanted people to understand that I believe every word that I'm saying and I'm putting every ounce of my being into this to the point where I think I, I told you when I was done, it was a 30-minute speech. I was emotionally exhausted. I was, I was yeah. literally shaking when I was done because I didn't know how it was received, but I just put myself out there. Well, I want to come back to how it was received towards the end. But as you know, I've loved the idea of the key speech from the first time I saw the idea of it from Ove Arup and the way that he had approached it 30, 40 years ago. So when you actually came back to me after a while and said, hey, Jason, I just did this. I was so excited because I was like, that is so cool. I can't wait to read it and see what it's all about. So one of the things I want to do in this podcast is I actually want to talk about some of the contents of the key speech because I think there's, there's things in your speech 
that are really, really sharp. And I think there's a lot of firms that can learn from the way that you've framed a couple of concepts around, around how you see the firm. So I picked out two or three that I just really liked some of the analogies that you used. The one analogy that I really like a lot is how you describe the firm first as an ecosystem. So it's sort of like it's a living thing and you compared it to a river and you talked about how you know drops of water enter and exit the river. And, and, and then you talk about how the firm is more of a community than anything. And so I, I guess I'd just like to hear you talk a little bit about that. Like when you talk about MSA as a community or as, or as an ecosystem, what do you mean by that? And what does it mean for the people that come to work every day, I guess? Sure. And in full disclosure, you know, the, the River Company is, is it's a blatant ripoff <laughs> from a, a really great book. It's called The Living Company by Ari DeGeis. And and, okay. and he brings that analogy in, and and if anything, I've maybe extended it a little bit to the ecosystem. But he describes the river company. It, it sort of it ebbs and it flows and it shrinks and it grows as needed, and and drops of water enter and leave as people do. But the river keeps going on, and and so we all enter MSA, we all leave at some point. But if we do our job as stewards, you know the company will continue on. That that's our goal here. So you, you think about an ecosystem. There's plants, there's animals, the geography, the geology, nature. They're all playing in interdependent roles on what that river has to do to keep flowing. So I think that's reasonable. When we think about our company from a systems view, we've got, you know, these internal support groups like HR and IT. We've got our external facing people getting the work and doing the work. And then, and then and of course, outside events in the world and the economy impact us. And all of us together have to figure out how are we going to adapt to what's going on so that we can keep chugging along. So I use that with our new employee orientation. I, I think it's, you know, people have used to use, you know, like a machinery, a piece of mechanical device to, to to describe a company, right? You turn this lever and that happens. But when you think about it in terms of a living system or an organism unto itself, I, I think it really is a much more compelling vision as to the company. And then when we get into the community, I think that's more of a, an attempt to describe how we interact with each other as people. And the counterpoint is oftentimes people use or liken themselves in a company to a family, right? They've got a family atmosphere. We're like a family. And I think as MSA was in its formative years, we probably did that too. But five years ago, one of the first things we did as I started to be able to direct the company is we began creating these internal communities of practice, putting like practitioners from across the company together. And as we grow in size and we grow in diversity, you know, all of a sudden maybe family doesn't work. We paid a lot of attention to interpersonal skills building. We do 360s, we do personality work. So I think our culture is becoming much more mature in terms of how people behave and how they react when the inevitable challenges arise. So it was really gratifying to hear from our group of interns this summer. We did a little get together at the end of the summer, hey, how was your experience? And several of them started using the term community to describe their impressions of what it was like to work at MSA over the summer. So I really took that metaphor and ran with it and really just tried to illustrate that building a great community might be harder and maybe more gratifying than being in a great family. And I don't mean to diminish the amount of work it takes to build a good family because I know that as well. But in communities, people have more choice as to whether they want to belong to that yeah. community, whereas you don't generally have that much choice with yes. your family. You're born into it and you, you make the best out of it. And sometimes it's awesome and sometimes it's less than awesome. But hey, if we don't have a great community, people will just leave. Yeah. And I love the way you describe that, too. I think it's 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 really spot on, too. And it's funny because... 
shortly after you sent me the speech, I had done something inspired around the HubSpot culture code, which is similar with our staff. And one of the five values that we pulled out of our our agency that we talk about is we call it family matters. And it's just this idea that we try to create time and space for people to actually have families and have lives, which in the agency world is like a lot of agencies just don't behave that way. Guiltily, when I read your your speech, I, I stepped back and went, oh man, I, maybe I missed the boat on that one. <laughs> I totally blew it. Yeah, I'm 30 years behind. a family. <laughs> I laughed about that, but no, it was really good. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. The other section that I love is when you talk about growth, because there's a whole section, you actually break the speech up into four parts. So for the folks that may not ever get the chance to see this, you break it into four parts. You have a section about change. You have a section about the company. You have a section about culture. And we have our aims for the future and how we can get there. And then our role as owners and, and putting, yes. again, more meat around this idea of, of if I'm an owner, what are my rights, but also what are my responsibilities? And what I what I really liked about the section on growth was how you talked about the importance of growth. So, you know, why growth matters and what it does for the firm. But then you also talk about this idea of the firm remaining human scale. And you made some, you know, comparisons in there. But talk about that because I I love the phrase, you know, we want to be a human scale firm. I just think that's a really great way of looking at it. Yeah. So I think we wanted to first get it out on the table that people understand that growth is good and it's not growth for growth's sake. It's not about rank, you know, going up some ranking, but we wanted to articulate to people why growth is good and, and help them answer that question if they're asked. But then I started thinking, you know, if you extrapolate growth to the nth degree, that doesn't maybe look like who we want to be. And if I go back to the natural world for one of my analogies, if you think of a tree, when a tree spends an awful lot of its life growing, but trees don't grow forever right? They stop at some point when they yeah. reach maturity and their, their optimal size. Maybe they, like like a human, they grow in girth <laughs> and they're not growing in height <laughs> so much, but they, they can't keep growing taller forever because they would topple over. They couldn't sustain themselves. So I, I think about the engine, you know, the largest firms in, in our sector, they're, they're over 100,000 employees. And I can't, imagine for a minute what that must feel like, but I don't think it's possible in in that size of a corporation to replicate the warmth and collegiality that a smaller firm can provide. And then if we just go beyond the feeling, if you look at the industry metrics, these are undeniable. The larger firms will have a lower profit margin. They suffer a much higher rate of turnover than the smaller firms. So there really is a sweet spot out there. So I think there is an optimum size and, and that's where it comes back to why is that the optimum size? Is it because people are comfortable knowing the people around them? They have an ability to trust those people. 
and and to me that's where i think the optimum size is related to the the humanness the ability to relate to the people in the company and know that you know no matter how many offices you are you're adhering to the same culture awful hard to say that when there's 100,000 people so this idea of being human scale as opposed to you know i think i probably use the death star i always uh, go back yeah. to that but some vast <laughs> impenetrable bureaucracy where you're reduced you know to to some kind of a number and i think we have to acknowledge that there is an end point to growth. Um, that's going to be well beyond my tenure here, and that's for future generations to figure out. But I want them to bear that in mind. I don't ever want them to fall into the got to keep growing forever trap, because I, I think we've seen how that ends. Well, it's funny because I, I feel like Jeff and I talked about this in a podcast where we were talking about, I think it might have been with Mc. I think he had suggested maybe McKinsey had gone through that. And there's a book called The Firm about their growth, where there had been this stretch where they, maybe they they grew faster and more than they originally anticipated. And they thought they had lost some some element of the culture and then they had to regain it. It was hard. Sure. I guess the third part of this that I really loved that I wanted to, to hit on that I just thought was really interesting was when you talk about change. And there's a quote in here. I'm going to, I'm just going to read it because this is actually is probably my favorite quote in the whole speech. And basically you say, if you don't like change, you're going to hate irrelevance. I might actually have to steal that. Well, you can because I stole it from somebody else. Oh, even better. Yeah, um, it's a paraphrase. Um, I, I, I think it's, it really says if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. But it's a U.S. Army yeah. general, Eric Shinesky, who is credited with that, and and I think it's it's right on because what I'm trying to get at is you know the future's coming at us faster than ever, right? If, if you think about the rate of change that we've seen in the last five years, it's it's the greatest we've ever seen in in humankind's history, and it's the slowest rate of change we're ever going to see for the rest of our lives. So so engineers, maybe everybody, but engineers in particular seem fairly resistant to change. But you got to remember that engineers and architects, we dwell in the safe and the conservative and the known because the public health, safety and welfare depends on us using tried and true methods. So buildings and bridges don't collapse. But this idea that things will change, we've got to keep that in the dialogue because otherwise people just get too set in their ways. We've got to keep people malleable and, and ready for this really uncertain future. You know, what you did eloquently as well is you classified really two parts of change, that there's there's change that is sort of thrust upon us and change that we choose, that we say, well, we, we're going to pursue this change because we think it's in the best interest. I mean, a great example, of course, are the communities of practice that you've built in the firm. That's change by choice. Right. I think it's interesting to hear you, you talk about that. I mean, talk about yeah. the communities of practice a little bit and sort of that choice you made as a leader to actually bake that into the culture and what it's done for the firm, yeah. you know. It, it, it was a choice. That's a podcast in and of itself. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I'll just I'll keep it short, but it, it was a choice and it wasn't substantiated by any you know internal rate of return calculation. It was clearly one of those things that felt like absolutely the right thing to do on a number of, of accounts. There's a cost, of course. It takes What we do is we sell time in our business. So if we get together in a room and talk about how to get better at their practice, there's travel time and bar bills to be paid. But 
so the results were really intangible. We just thought it was the right thing. It was sort of a leap of faith. But a year or two down the line, all of a sudden, some tangible results started showing up. We, we win a large project because the client observed that our group had more passion and they had actual relationships with each other than the other interview teams. And then that project leads to another project, which leads to another project. That wouldn't have happened if not for the communities of practice. And then the other example I would point to is in late 2016, we were having a discussion with one of our former employees. He had left us and he was maybe interested in in coming back. But when we were talking to him, he pitched the idea of actually hiring not only him, but his whole group of 12 people that he'd been working with. And that included uh, people outside our traditional geography. So when we met with him and his principal five years ago, all we could have said was, sure, we want the revenue that you would bring to us. So come and join us, right? And that in and of itself would not been much of a pitch, but instead we were able to tell the story of who we were becoming and how would their staff fit within our communities of practice and and point to all the other things we've been doing to improve as a company. And all of a sudden it makes a pretty compelling case. So they did all in fact join us and now we're working to grow these locations in Atlanta and Dallas, two really hot geographies that offer some diversification from our upper Midwest geography. None of that would have happened, I believe, had we not made that leap of faith to create the communities of practice. That's an interesting story. I didn't know that that was how that actually came to be. You know what I like? There's another phrase in there that I'm going to quote because I liked it as well. And this was in relation, I think, to the communities of practice. You said, we could have chosen not to do those things, but that would have been a choice not to become an exceptional firm. And in a way, that that one phrase sort of encapsulates so much of what you're trying to say in this speech is that the choices we make uh, have a direct impact on what's going to happen and the communities of practice. I mean, the the decision you made, and I like the way you described it right now, you were making a future value decision. You were saying, you know, like you said, the internal rate of return doesn't show up right now, but I know that it's the right thing to do. And I know that I'll be rewarded in spades down the line. I just don't know how. Right. And that's the thing where we've got to get people's trust in in that that decision is going to pan out. Because again, smaller firms, it's it's very common. And we were like this at, at one time. If you're just highly operationally efficient, you can keep your head down and just focus on making money. And the money that you get, you you, you divide up and pay out as bonuses to avoid paying taxes. That's a simple yeah. version on, on how a firm would run. The problem is you're not investing in the future of that company. And, and that's the type of company that ultimately ends up getting sold. So what we had to do is start to decouple and say, success is not necessarily measured by how big a bonus you're going to get. In fact, we're far better off if we don't give you as big a bonus and we reinvest that in the company, either through some type of initiative or even if we're talking now about some type of acquisitions, the money that just gets paid out doesn't really help grow the company. It it allows people Mm -hmm. to stimulate the economy, but it doesn't really help the company along. So we're in this pivot point again of the way we used to manage the firm and the way we now can manage the firm, especially now that we're an S-Corp, an S-Corp owned by an ESOP doesn't pay taxes. Hmm. So we've got some tax-free income that gets freed up. It helps us with the ownership transition, but it gives us the opportunity to make investments in the company, which although it might decrease your bonus today, it should improve the value of your ownership stake in the company. The biggest challenge I think that we and other ESOP firms face is, especially with a lot of younger folks joining the workforce, is retirement's a long ways away. In fact, it's an abstract action and people don't care. It, it, it just is so far out in the future 
as to maybe not have much value to them as opposed to, hey, write me a check right now and we're good. But so that's, again, up to us to continue to stay on message as to why that's a good thing. You know, I mean, what do we hear all the time? People are under investing for their retirements. So by maybe being a little bit more top down and saying, we're going to do things that instead of producing cash for you today, are going to produce cash for you upon your retirement. You know, you might not appreciate it today, but hopefully someday you'll thank us for that. You'll appreciate it in the future. Yeah. You gave us another great pivot point, I'll call it in there. So let's pivot back out of the speech and let's just talk about in sort of the last comments before we wrap how how it was received. You know, so you you know you alluded to this early on. You put yourself out there as a leader. You you were a little bit vulnerable in the moment, right? Saying I'm going to do something differently than I've ever done yep. it, and I have a reason for doing that. What has the reception been like? It's, it's it's been good. You know, again, it was pretty quiet. I had a few people say, "Wow, that was really something." You know, I had uh, one one gentleman. <laughs> Uh, a survey tech. The email he sent me, the the, the subject line was exclamation mark. <laughs> and he went on to, to say how jazzed up he was. But I asked my leadership team at our the, the meeting following that, I said, so I mean, I just did this. I don't know how it was thought of. Can anybody give me any feedback as to whether, you know, people were buying into this? And uh, one of the guys spoke up. He said, well, I'll tell you, we were interviewing a prospective employee and he was asking all kinds of questions about the company. And uh, we just sent him your speech. <laughs> so, and, and I should I should laugh because I'm not sure if, if he ended up joining us or not. But I guess I felt, well, OK, that tells me that it was coherent enough for them to want to pass it on and think it would answer somebody's questions about, you know, who we are, where we're going. So we're, we're going to work and uh, our, our marketing folks are thinking about maybe making me redo it in, in a manner where they could cut it up or maybe improve on the audio quality a little bit. I, I think it probably, maybe not as in its entirety, but there are probably some things in there that would, you know, be good to include as part of our onboarding. I just think it helps take away some of the mystery and the sooner people figure out, you know, this is what we're about, you know, and hopefully it'll help us self-select the right people. Not everybody is is cut out or maybe wants to be in an employee-owned company. Maybe they want to be able to own the whole company, which you can't do, or maybe they don't want the responsibilities of ownership. So I think the more we can use these in our recruiting messages and say, this is what we're about. And, and if you're that kind of person, you should join us. And, and if these things don't appeal to you, no harm, no foul, but we're probably not the right company for you and we can save ourselves both a lot of heartache. (laughs) Yeah. I can't think of a better reception to get from the speech than than one of your leaders saying that to you, because that's really what it's all about. And, you know, Jeff and I just did a a podcast discussion around this notion of a legacy firm. And and what it strikes me is that that's that's really what this is about. It's it's about defining the legacy for the firm and looking out at the time horizon out in front of you, even beyond your stay as a leader, you know, so where this firm is going to end up. And I guess I just I have to commend you for for having the courage to to stand up and and do that. Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciated the inspiration. It was a good fit. <laughs> I, I just sometimes need a little nudge, but fortunately, I, I enjoy that kind of stuff, and I'm I'm hoping that it does become for a while, as long as it serves some purpose. You know, another brick in the wall of our culture that uh, helps define who we are and and how we're different from you know all or most of the other firms out there from the Borg. So I want to thank you. I'm going to thank you on behalf of all MSAers out there for articulating and, and coining the speech. And then I'm going to thank you to all of our podcast listeners for sharing both the story of the speech and some of the insights inside of it, because it was a really, really 
inspirational and, and enjoy to enjoy to have the conversation. So thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you. This, this was fun. I appreciate it, Jason. Right, cool. See you. Go. Yeah, bye. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank <laughs> you.